Welcome to the New Books Network. This is the Nordic Asia Podcast. Welcome to the Nordic Asia Podcast, a collaboration sharing expertise on Asia across the Nordic region. My name is Satoko Naito. I'm a docent at the Center for East Asian Studies at the University of Turku in Finland. Today, it's my great pleasure to welcome Dr. Lasse Lehtonen, who is a postdoctoral researcher at the University of Tokyo. He's kindly agreed to speak with us today about his current research on women singer-songwriters from the 1970s and 80s Japan and their relation to the feminist movements at large. So thanks very much for joining us today, Lasse. Thank you very much for the invitation. Uh, before we get to your current research, which I'm really excited to learn more about, I was fascinated to hear that your dissertation topic at the University of Helsinki for your PhD was actually on nationalism and Japanese composers of the 1930s. So at first I thought, you know, this is very far away from your current topic, but, but then I realized that probably this is not true and there is some significant thematic or theoretical overlaps. Can you share with us how you arrived at your current topic and, and what such common threads may be? Yeah, sure. I mean, obviously, we're talking about very, very different music because my current research project deals with popular music in the 1970s, and my dissertation was about what could be perhaps said Western art music or classical music by Japanese composers. Um, as you probably know, if we think about the 1930s, the years leading to the Pacific War, it was very turbulent times for Japanese society with the rise of militarism and nationalism. And these topics are something that have been approached and studied from quite many different viewpoints, but not that much from the viewpoint of music. So I was kind of interested in understanding whether composers, Japanese composers of this time, also expressed these nationalist discourses Mm -hmm. uh, in their musical works and in their writings, which I also studied. And then on the other hand, musicological research on works by Japanese composers have been focused on post-war music and composers. So I was also interested Mm. in knowing in general what kind of music was composed in Japan at this time. So basically I had these two connections. It was the music analysis and the musicological side and then this um, social discourse and music as a social discourse, which is, I would say, an overlap with my current research project as well. Right, right. When you talk about the composers, so of course these are composers of instrumental music, orchestral music, is that right? Yeah, mostly, yeah, instrumental, orchestral, solo piano, songs, so forth. Something to be performed in a concert hall. Okay, and and then you moved on to your current research on uh, 1970s and 80s female female singer-songwriters, is that right? Yeah, that's correct. Okay. And, and so, so why that error and why those specific artists? Can you tell us why they are worth studying in your opinion? Yeah. I mean, well, the reason for me to originally get interested in them was that I was just kind of fond of listening to music of this time. <laughs> but um, yeah, I mean, it's, it's um, entirely personal interest originally. But then I noticed something quite interesting. 
mm-hmm. which is that basically in the history of modern popular music in Japan, there were very, very little women or there was very little music written by women, I mean, composed by women and songs whose lyrics were written by women. I see. Whereas suddenly in the 1970s, we see this great rise in women singer-songwriters. So obviously we are talking about um, musicians who wrote their own music. So this made me wonder what kind of impact they had on Japanese popular music from a gender point of view. So, I mean, as women singer-songwriters, were they able to bring new voices, uh, the voices of women into Japanese popular music? And also what's very interesting here is that simultaneously, the rise of these female singer-songwriters also coincide with the rise of feminism and large-scale feminist movements in Japan. I mean, there had been feminist movements before. But this meant the rise of a new uh, feminist movement called the women's liberation movement. So I just found this kind of this kind of connection very very interesting. Why did this happen in the 1970s, and was there perhaps some kind of connection? So that's how I got interested uh, in studying this topic. So maybe it's a little early. I know this is ongoing research for you, so it may be too early to to pose this question. But so are these just synchronous or is it i mean do you think that one caused the other one was an effect of the other i would say that yes although the musicians i study by the way by whom i for example refer to matsutoya yumi or yumin and nakajima miyuki and Mm. takechi maria who are all very very well known and popular female artists even today so basically they did not kind of incorporate overtly feminist messages into their songs. Mm. But I would say that because different fields of culture and popular culture in Japan at that time saw the same kind of phenomenon. So for example, there were more women becoming involved with the media and with um, producing popular culture. I Mm. would say that that music was kind of reflecting and also constructing these new values in Japan at that time. Obviously, that's something that is a little bit difficult to point out how it actually happened, but the connection surely does exist there. Sure. Uh, when, when you say different kinds of media, uh, women's involvement, kind of new involvement in different kinds of media, what are you talking about specifically? Um, well, for example, certain feminist, I mean, I'm here citing feminist research by Japanese media, mm-hmm. feminist media scholars, but they okay. have noted that from the mid-1970s onward, more and more women became involved, for example, with uh, the production of television dramas. And, well, obviously girls manga, although that was also before the mid-1970s. And, for example, fiction that was marketed specifically for women and so forth. I see. So not just on the side of production, but also intended consumption. And, and then also, is, that, is there representation then within the media, I'm assuming? Yeah, exactly. And that's actually the main point. So for example, many feminist media scholars in Japan have noted that at the latter half of the 1970s, for example, women's magazines begin, began to disseminate images of women as individuals, whereas before that women were more portrayed as 
well, wives and mothers and mm-hmm. perhaps lovers. So it mm-hmm. kind of changed uh, the image of women in the larger media discourse and, and then, of course, for the women who consumed these magazines. So these magazines and other media, kind of based on this kind of previous research, they gave new models of identification for w- women in Japan at that time. Mm-hmm. I see. Turning to the kind of approach that you take to your current research, So you mentioned earlier when you were working on your dissertation of the composers of the 1930s, of course, then if it's instrumental, there are no lyrics to study. But obviously with these singer-songwriters, there are lyrics that you can analyze uh, from their songs. And particularly if they were songwriters, uh, so they produce their own own songs and then perform their own songs. Mm -hmm. Um, I understand that there will be this kind of these kinds of texts to study, but how how else are you analyzing them? What what kind of sources are you focused on? Yeah, I mean, yeah, lyrics. As I said a moment ago, although they did not, all these artists did not really incorporate explicit feminist messages to their songs. I think mm. that their lyrics, first of all, reflected the same phenomenon that I just just described that took mm. place at large in in Japanese media at that time. Now. In addition to that, I'm also studying their sound because, so as gender studies of music often argue, also musical sound uh, does communicate gender. And one problem here is that for female artists who want to be seen as kind of authors of their music, they have been encouraged, not only in Japan, but also in, in the Euro-American sphere, they have been encouraged to adapt these kind of more masculine idioms of music. So also I'm interested in studying whether the music incorporates some aspects that could be called feminine based on these kinds of gender studies of music. And then, of course, I'm also studying the public media discourse. So, for example, since they were considered as authors, as songwriters, singer-songwriters, and they had a high level of agency as people who produce their music, So Mm -hmm. I'm I'm interested in the question whether they still were subject to expectations for women or the general expectations for women in Japanese society or, or at that time, or for example, if their status, status of an author kind of changed their position. So I'm also studying print publications and then television programs. Mm. Television programs, can you elaborate on that? Yeah, when we come to the 1970s and also the 80s, basically television was one of the major, or it was perhaps the major medium for disseminating and marketing popular songs. Mm. So these music shows were very, very popular in Japan at that time, and they kind of confirmed the status of a popular artist. Mm. However, singer-songwriters, not only women, but also men, wanted to emphasize their musicianship. So quite many of them declined performances on these kinds of programs because Mm. they felt that it put too much emphasis on aspects other than their music. And obviously, as was for male singer-songwriters, I would say that also for women singer-songwriters who declined performances on these shows, it was a way for them to kind of emphasize their own artistry and their authorship and their musicianship. But at the same time, these programs were produced by men and they were directed by men and 
I think that this can also be interpreted as a way for women musicians to kind of avoid these stereotypical visual representations that objectify them. Mm-hmm. I mean, for example, I have interviewed a quite popular singer-songwriter, Okamura Takako, who debuted in the early 1980s. Mm-hmm. And he she wanted to succeed as a musician, and she wished that the media would have emphasized her musicianship. But when she performed on these programs, basically she told me that she felt very unnatural because all the programs did was to emphasize the visual aspects that she felt that objectified her. So there's also this kind of dynamics going on with the television and and especially with women musicians. Mm, I see. I'm really curious to to learn that. So there were many artists, uh, particularly the ones you study, who did decline appearances on these various television shows. Mm-hmm. Um, h- how do you know about them declining it? I mean, of course, if they were very popular and you just didn't see them, then you might assume that they were declining themselves. But how do you know of this? And do you know anything more about, I imagine some of their managers and execs in their music mm-hmm. production companies were not happy with that? Yeah, but then again, we are talking about the period when many male musicians were similarly interested in just kind of emphasizing the musicianship of of also those who they produce. So during this period, quite many of the producers were musicians themselves, and they wanted to prioritize the wishes of the musicians uh, whose work they produced. And as for the question of how I know this, this was actually quite a well-known topic in Japan at that time. I mean, it was considered so surprising. So, for example, Yuming, Matsutoya Yumi, whom I mentioned, who is one of the most well-known of these singer-songwriters, <laughs> she always or she very often had, had to answer this question in interviews, why are you not appearing on television? So mm-hmm. it was considered to be quite extraordinary that although television was such a major medium of disseminating popular music, these people did not want to perform on these shows. Now, this said, for example, Yumin, she did perform on programs when they offered her a possibility to express her musical talent, meaning that these programs were typically focused on um, having each performer perform only one song. But if it was possible to perform many songs and kind of express the different sides of your musicianship, then they also performed on music shows. But then again, these were entirely different music shows from from those ordinary weekly music shows. Mm -hmm. We spoke a bit earlier and you had mentioned a quote that I found really interesting that you mean, I believe, made in a maybe an interview about her backstage feminism or the fact that she felt she was performing backstage feminism, perhaps. Can you elaborate on what, at least what you think that means? Yeah, that's actually, that's a very interesting quote. And it's something that you mean, I mean, she debuted already in 1972, but this is something that she said in an interview in 1984. So it was kind of in retrospect, considering the 1970s. But I think that the comment quite nicely crystallizes the thing that was going on with these female singer-songwriters in the 1970s. So I would claim in my research that they were a kind of reflection of the wider 
social phenomena and on the other hand they through their performances and through their songs they also participated in constructing this social reality so there is this kind of dynamic between music and performances and the wider social sphere mm, i see yeah with regards to the dynamics the kind of interaction between these musicians their performances and society at large going way back to the beginning of course as you mentioned there is a fundamental connection between your earlier work on 1930s uh, nationalism and your current work mm-hmm. and i think that in a more basic sense you are studying music as social and cultural history mm-hmm. and i when i learned of this i thought i i don't know very much about the field at all but i i found it to be really novel mm-hmm. and you said yourself that you think that there's a bit of a kind of an absence of this this kind of approach what do you think that if i'm understanding you correctly what do you think that japanese studies as a field or the study of japan or east asia perhaps can benefit how do you think they can benefit from your approach and from incorporating things like music history musicology Yeah that's a that's a very good question. I mean well I'm now talking specifically from the viewpoint of Japan but basically mm. music occupies a very prominent role in Japanese culture and society mm. but I don't think that Japanese studies as a field of area studies has really been that active in studying music as mm. Japanese culture and I would claim that this is the result of a long tradition of western musicology a kind of formalist tradition that puts so much emphasis on analyzing music and music theory and so mm. forth so i think that this has resulted this tradition has resulted in the situation that many fields not only area studies but also other fields in social sciences and the humanities have kind of overlooked music because of this idea that it's socially detached and it requires a specific set of skills to understand music. However, I would claim that since music is so strongly intertwined with social and cultural aspects, we should be more sensitive to understanding how music functions in the wider social sphere. So for example, as I mentioned a moment ago, uh, how music both reflects and then also constructs uh, social discourses and social values. And in this sense, I mean I don't think that music is marginal in Japanese studies because music would be marginal in Japan it's marginal in Japanese studies because it's constantly marginalized but I think that music also since it's a very specific form of art it's a sonic form of art it also offers a kind of point of entry to address some phenomena that are perhaps more difficult to address through other channels To give one concrete example, I think that area studies in general and also the humanities in general have recently embraced ideas such as transnationalism and global histories and what is called decentralized histories. So that we for example should not speak about cultures in simplistic terms, for example, mm-hmm. the traditional dichotomy of east and west mm-hmm. and for example japanese studies has been so much focused on the idea that we have europe and america and then we have japan and these mm. are the two poles so there is in area studies and in japanese studies 
there has recently been a trend of disentangling uh, this kind of paradigm. And I would say that music and musicians who have always defied and negotiated national and cultural boundaries offer a very, very interesting and very fruitful sphere to study these kinds of transnational aspects and decentralized aspects. And I think that this is one very concrete example of, of recent research trends where music could be of much more benefit to area studies that has perhaps been kind of understood thus far. Hmm. This is very convincing to me. <laughs> it's very convincing, your argument. And, and I have no doubt that you're hitting on something really important. So how exactly did you come arrive at this, your, your interest? Is it music first? Is it speaking of uh, area studies, is it Japan first, or is that a silly question to ask? Uh, no, no, no. It's, it's actually a very good question to ask. And well, since I'm uh, involved with musicology as a researcher, I should probably mention that there is this very bad joke that all mu- musicologists are just failed musicians, and that's <laughs> why they want to study. Mm-hmm. Well, I, I don't think that that's true, but as many other musicologists or people involved with musicology, I also have been playing various instruments since I was a kid. So I played uh-huh. the flute and the piano, and I also sang in a choir. And in in high school, I got interested in Japanese literature. And through that, I got interested in Japanese language and culture. And that's why I decided to major Japanese studies at the university. However, um, music and Japanese studies at this time, they were entirely separate spheres of interest Mm. for me. So I did not have have any plan to combine them. Mm. However, during one course, I we had to write an essay related to Japanese culture. And I realized that I really do not know anything about Japanese music. So I decided that perhaps it would be a good idea to kind of use my previous knowledge of music and combine that with Japanese studies. And then I went to the library with the idea that I would just borrow many books and and know more about Japanese music. Mm -hmm. However, I noticed that there was much less material available mm. in English than I had thought. Okay. And this kind of made me interested in studying the topic itself. And, well, I just mentioned this paradigm about music being socially detached and so forth. Actually, this is the very same bias that I had myself. Mm. So I think that's also my way of emphasizing music as culture and cultural history, which the important of, importance of which I have come to really understand through my involvement with my research on Japanese music and through my involvement with musicology. Mm-hmm. So basically, I understand where that kind of paradigm uh, derives from, since I also had that paradigm in, inside me as mm-hmm. well. So I think that my current research is also kind of subscribed to contesting this paradigm. Mm-hmm. That's very exciting, inspiring to me that you were able to combine your various interests, even from childhood and then, you know, in high school and to be able to basically create a subfield or a field for yourself that really does sound like is, is a need of formation. So the, those books that you couldn't find at the library before you will be writing yourself. So that's, that's very <laughs> exciting. Yeah, and I shall probably mention that although this is a very minor field, I do not want to give the impression that I would be the only one doing it. I mean, there right. have been many, many people doing it before me, and there are right. many doing it 
at the moment as well. It's just quite marginal. It's, it's mm-hmm. quite minor. Right, right. I understand. Uh, before I let you go, I wanted to ask you something. Push back a little bit on what you said earlier about the female songwriters not having overtly feminist lyrics, or at least I, I think that's what you said. I don't want to put words in your mouth. I know very little about the artists that you mentioned, mm-hmm. but I do remember Nakajima Miyuki. I really loved her song, Faito. Are mm-hmm. you familiar with that? It's- yes, I am. Yeah, so um, yeah, it was probably very popular. And that I realize is from later. It's from the early or mid 1990s. But I remember it. I don't know if having feminist undertones is right, but really emphasized. I mean, it's an inspirational song, but also very sad. And talking about, you know, girls who are who aren't able to get jobs because they don't have enough education, or women in domestic violence situations, or children in domestic violence situations. Mm-hmm. So I was just wondering if, and maybe because this is outside the scope of your time frame, of course. So Have you noticed any change in some of these singer-songwriters?、Uh, Yumin and Nakajima Miyuki are both so prolific. I mean, they, they span decades. So, and I'm sorry that I'm only familiar with the things from a little bit later, <laughs> but did you, have you noticed any differences from the 70s, the 80s, the 90s, if you've looked into it that far? Yeah, I think that your observation really hits the mark here. I mean, Yeah, when I say that they did not that much incorporate these feminist messages in their, into their songs, that basically concerns the 1970s. And well, that's also the、uh, period in which I'm most familiar with. But I completely agree with you. I mean, when we come to the 1990s, there are,、uh, due to certain social developments, there are much more women involved with professional life, for example. And I think that. There are quite many songs that are much more bold in more explicitly communicating also these kinds of messages. So, Faito is a very good example.、Uh, another one would be by Okamura Takako, whom I mentioned a moment、mm-hmm. ago, who had this song called Miteki no Karyagare.、Mm-hmm. So, it would be Invincible Carrier Girl、mm. in English. And she was also at that time rendered a guru of working women for that reason. So, I think、mm. that these topics have become much more explicit since the 1990s. Although these are still individual examples, but still they have become much more explicit. And I think that this also is something that reflects、uh, the changes that Japanese. Society has undergone during the past decades. Thank you. You've, you've inspired me to, to look up more of the music of the times by these artists. And I'm really happy that I was able to be reminded that you reminded me of all these wonderful artists from the period.、Oh, that's、um, great. <laughs> so, thank you very much. You're currently back in Helsinki, but planning on returning to the University of Tokyo in the fall. Is that right? Yeah, that's correct. Okay, great. Well, I hope that that can happen smoothly and safe and healthy journey to you. And best wishes on your ongoing research. I'm, I'm looking forward to, to reading more about all of this in the near future. Thank you very much. So, thank you. That was Lasse Lehtonen, postdoctoral researcher at the University of Tokyo. 
And to our listeners, thank you for joining the Nordic Asia podcast, showcasing Nordic collaboration in studying Asia. Thanks again. You have been listening to the Nordic Asia podcast.